Welcome to the Human Performance Podcast. Here we talk about everything to do with human performance and how leaders and organizations can get the best out of themselves and their people. I'm your host, Alex Young. My guest on the podcast this week is Kim Curry. Kim worked in radio for nearly 33 years, growing Miami's largest talk time radio show until he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis at the age of 50 and forced to change his path in life. Now a successful author having written two books, we discuss how large life changes can cause you to pivot and change your outlook in your career, how to overcome adversity, and how to grow a major broadcast radio station. Hey Kim, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Alex, I'm doing very well and thank you very much. I'm uh, in Loveland, Colorado. Um, we're having our our, our third wave in our state. So we're, we're trying to get through the, the next problem that we're having with the coronavirus. But uh, I'm, I'm loving the day. It's nice and sunny outside, although we're having the worst fire season in the history of our state. There's three fires going on within 20 or 30 miles of my home right now. So is that right? Goodness. Well, hopefully, hopefully you stay, stay safe, certainly during this podcast. And, and if not, well beyond that as well. <laughs> no, I'll be fine. Thank you. So um, well, it's, it's an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. And um, I was just saying, um, but before we sort of started recording, um, it, it's going to be really interesting discussing your story with, with I guess, my, you know, my medical background. And um, but before sort of I get in with with my many questions, I'd be really interested to ask you. It'd be fantastic to hand over to you just to um, describe to our listeners everything about yourself and, and your background. Well, let me give you a little idea. Um, I'm a 65-year-old man who at the age of 17, my father worked on the only radio station in my hometown. Uh, he was a news guy there. And they had a show on Sunday morning that no one wanted to take care of. It was the Sunday morning God show. They would record the, the services at the different churches throughout Sunday morning and then play them back the following week. And they needed a high school kid. Nobody wanted to do that show. So my dad got me involved there. And a couple of years later, I went to the University of Southern Colorado um, to, um, to go to radio school there about two years and then got hired for my first full-time job in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, traveled across the country uh, in, in an old Plymouth Valiant with everything that I owned and got into Knoxville, Tennessee. And, and the crazy part about that was this. I, I, my name is Kim Curry. Um, in the 70s, that's how long ago this was, you really couldn't call a guy Kim where I come from. This is Colorado, a bunch of hardcore, you know, cowboys out here. So you couldn't <laughs> call a guy Kim. So when I went to my first full-time job, I, I wanted to come up with a new, a new name for myself. And because I was going on at 10 o'clock at night, I was going to call myself Night Smoke. Ooh, 1976. <laughs> uh, so when I, when I got to the radio station in Knoxville, I walked in and there was a lady sitting at the receptionist desk and a guy behind her with this Hawaiian shirt and his hair was all curly and frizzy. And I reached out my hand to the young lady and I said, hello, my name is Night Smoke. I'm your new nighttime disc jockey. And the guy behind her says, well, if it isn't Kid Curry. And I said, oh, Kid Curry, I hate that name. Now, for the worldwide listeners, Kid Curry is an old Western legend in our, in our country. Uh, he, Kid Curry and Hannibal Hayes were Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And their legend was that they never killed anybody. They just robbed a bunch of places. Uh, 
Well, this guy thought, well, Kid Curry will be the name we call you. And it was a nickname that I did not like as a child. So I said to him, I'm sorry, man, I don't like that name. He said, well, then I won't sign your check. I was like, okay, <laughs> Kid Curry it is. That's what I'll do. Uh, six months later, though, I, I apparently had something to offer to the radio audience. I got a call from a guy in Miami, Florida. And six months later, I, I end up in Miami. And uh, six months after that, he was dismissed. He was fired. But the guy was a legend in the business. Uh, he, was, he was a real trendsetter in, in American Top 40 radio. Uh, he was very good at not having much budget money, but being able to create theater of the mind radio. And he was a legend. But because of what he had done at that radio station or someone prior to him had done, he was dismissed. So having that happen caused me to go across the street to the other radio station. They hired me over there. Uh, and I was working for the rich, the guy who had lots of money, radio legend. So I worked for the two radio legends in, in the very beginning of my career, Jerry Clifton and Bill Tanner. Uh, 33 years later, uh, they make me the program director of this particular radio station. And uh, I bring it to the highest success that it ever had. But in 2004, you'll remember the uh, tsunami. Um, Okay, I had brought my family out to, my, to Colorado to visit my mother from Miami because it was Christmas time. And my mother didn't know what a tsunami was. I had to tell her what the word even meant. Uh, so we're watching it on TV. And you, you remember that that was the first time we've actually visualized that kind of destruction, especially live. Uh, yeah, you could see old video of things like that, but you could never see it live until then. And it was real distressing. Uh, but at the end of the, the vacation, my mother stopped me and said, there's something wrong with you. Uh, you don't look right. And I told her that I felt I was just under stress. First of all, I run the most popular radio station in Miami, Florida. Uh, it's a full-time job. I'm the program director. If you're really good at your job, it doesn't shut off because radio stations don't shut off. So I work 24-7. Uh, plus, I had just been experiencing the trauma of the tsunami. So I told her, Mom, what you're seeing is the stress of life. And uh, she said, nope, something else is going on. And what, I, what was happening at the time, I really wasn't coming to focus in. Uh, I was having a problem walking, and I was losing vision in my right eye, and I was having deep shoulder pain, uh, and I was having a problem with my walking gait. And so about four weeks later, I ended up at the doctor's office. And about two months after that, because multiple sclerosis is not easy to diagnose, about two months after that, I was told that I, I was suffering from multiple sclerosis, which forced me into retirement because I'm the kind of guy who, uh, you know, it's a chronic disease. My focus changed. I was all the time on the radio station. Suddenly, all I could think of was this thing that was going on that was, frankly, it could kill me. So it changed my focus, and I had forced into retirement. And, and then I spent about eight years um, suffering pretty badly. Uh, condition continued to fall apart. But when I first was diagnosed, there was only about four or five medicines at the time that were available for multiple sclerosis. By the eight years that had passed, that number had gone to about eight to 10. And so the medicine that I was on, the doctor didn't think I was responding to. 
and he told me he wanted to make a medicine chain. So it went from Rebif to Copaxone, just met MS medicines. Um, and, but, but he did something that I believe has a lot to do with what happened in my life at that time. Uh, he, he is, he's an author. He's got a book called uh, Optimal Health with Multiple Sclerosis. He believes that vitamin D has a lot to do with how the medicine that you take as a multiple sclerosis patient, he believes that it, it helps the medicine go into your system better. He thinks it just helps your body react better. Plus, in general, multiple sclerosis patients, vitamin D numbers are low. Everybody's vitamin D numbers are low, but it affects MS patients differently. So he harassed me for six months. You got to take more vitamin D. You got to take it. And I kept telling him, you know, I'm, I'm an old guy. Uh, my mom used to tell me to take vitamin C and I wouldn't get a cold and that never helps. So I don't think a vitamin really does much, but my wife uh, decided that uh, I was going to start taking it. And I started in, I, taking 5,000 IUs a day, every day for six months. And suddenly my condition began to level off. And it was surprising, shocking to me because I'm telling you, I was, I was not doing well. And then suddenly after about six months after this, this vitamin take and then the change of the medicine, suddenly things weren't looking so bleak. I wasn't, my, my legs were beginning to do the same thing all the time. They weren't getting worse. My shoulder, it wasn't getting worse. My vision stayed the same. Uh, so I believe at that point, uh, something changed and it helped my mental change. It helped me think that maybe this isn't, maybe I'm not going to die. Maybe I'm going to be okay. And at the time, um, because I had disappeared from the broadcasting business and because when you run the biggest radio station in Miami, Florida, you matter to people. But I had disappeared when I got diagnosed. And uh, about eight years later, a gentleman who had the most, well, you see the artists who win the Grammys. They wouldn't win those Grammys unless the guys, the record promoters got those songs on radio stations. So this guy was very big on a big award ceremony every year to, to give awards to the promoters, the record promoters in the business. And it was a very famous industry award ceremony. So he called one day and he said, you know what, man, uh, I think you need an, a lifetime achievement award and you disappeared. We need to see you. So he flew me and my family out to New York City and I couldn't believe it, it was around the holiday time and had the party at B.B. King's Blues Club and uh, saw my entire radio career flash in front of me because everybody that I had hired, fired, worked with, uh, people who had record promoted me and they were all there and it really inspired me. And then the next morning, my friend informed me that the reason he had done that is because he was, he was ill and was going to pass away. And so that really struck me that I, that, um, that my friend had really done this for me. And then he encouraged me to come back. He said, you got to do something, man. We, we need you, <coughs> excuse me, but it's the music industry, man. Radio, it all changed in the time I was out. I couldn't do anything for anybody, but what it did make me do was it made me decide to write the story, to write the story of my radio career and the ups and the downs and the, and the surprising times that multiple sclerosis flared up and I didn't know what it was because MS didn't just appear at age 50. I mean, it had been going through my whole life. I just didn't know what was happening. Uh, so I wanted to tell that story and then tell the story of the diagnosis and the things that had happened to me and, and then tell the story of my friend and how he'd helped me. 
And uh, so then I wrote my memoir. I actually had to hire someone to teach me how to write because I can tell a great story. <laughs> it's different when you have to write it. So I hired someone and she worked with me for about six months. And then I researched for about six months and wrote for another six months and came up with my memoir. And um, and it inspired me to keep writing. So that's what I do now. I'm a, I'm a writer and then that's my life now. That's kind of the whole circle. So Alex, there you have it. Well, it's, it's, it's a fantastic story. And um, I mean, it's, I've got so many sort of questions to jump in on, but I think one of the first things I'll just say is, um, I guess, especially for some of our medical listeners who are listening and, and non-medical, I suppose, that uh, multiple sclerosis is, is obviously a, it's a degenerative condition affecting the, um, the cells of the brain and spinal cord, um, which affects multiple different body systems, as, as you kind of alluded to, Kim, such as your vision and, and your, your muscles and things. But when, I, I mean, from, from going and, and you know, I'm sure you, you can remember the time when, when you received the diagnosis and, and had it explained to you. It must have been just such a, a huge challenge for you going from the top of your, your kind of career in a very successful uh, large industry to receiving that diagnosis. How, how did you sort of, how did you take it and, and how do you think that sort of affected your mindset going forwards after you received that diagnosis? First of all, Alex, I was pleased to know, <laughs> okay? Because when you're having things go on like I was having things go on and they were coming on rapidly, uh, I was pleased to know what it was. But there is a mind psyche that that going from the kind of guy people gravitate toward because, you know, I am the guy. And not only had I been the radio guy on the radio in Miami for 25 years, uh, I was now running the biggest radio station there and it was having huge success. So to be that guy. And then suddenly, you know, everything changes. I can't walk. So that means now I've got a cane and people move away from the guy with a cane. And then I go to crutches and then people get further away from the guy in crutches. And then, you know, I go to a wheelchair and nobody cares. Uh, and, and so it, that was a mind thing that I had to come to, to reality about. I, I could see why but I had to, you know, after my condition changed, I started writing and I started promoting my books. It's, you know, what I started thinking was when I was kid Curry, the radio guy, you know, I'd go to the Grammys, everybody come and say, Hey, how you doing? Thanks for helping me with the records, you know? And, but when you roll in in a room and you're the wheelchair guy, you're really the same guy because you're the one who everybody stops for. So either I sit back and just become the guy in the way, or I become the guy who starts the conversation. And so when I come into a room in my wheelchair, I am the guy. And I take that kid curry. I've been in front of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people at once. I've hosted all sorts of things. I've been everywhere. I, I'm a good talker. I can tell a good story. So I take over the room. I say hello. I'm the first to say hello. Kids love me because when you're in the wheelchair, you're their size. And so, you know, I, I've really gotten good at it, but it took me a while because I was the guy, then suddenly I wasn't. So, it, plus, you know, I, when you say at the end, you want me to talk about my hero. My hero is my wife. I'll tell you that now. Um, you know, she was on my arm at the Grammys. And then when your husband gets diagnosed with MS and she says it's her, her, her snow globe moment. When we got diagnosed, the snow globe got shook and then everything just started going, whoa, now what do we do? And that's the truth. Um, 
So my wife and I, we, we had become property investors um, with the money that I had acquired in my life. We came out to Colorado because I wanted to be in a very small area. I figured if I was, my mom still lived in my hometown. I, I'm, and if I was going to need support, why not get the support from my old high school buddies who were around town? So I moved from Miami and retired in Canyon City, Colorado. And, uh, you know, it was very, very peaceful for me there, you know, and I enjoyed it and it, it kind of helped me transition. Uh, but it was a, a mind thing that I had to control. I eventually got it under control. And now I, I fear nothing. Just like and, I and I, to fear nothing. Yeah, well, I was, I was going to ask, actually, I mean, what, are there any things that you kind of learned about yourself during that process? Or, or is there anything that you sort of, you know, feel um, you, you have sort of overcome and then been better for on, on the back of that? Well, I had to give up um, worrying about it. I think, you know, you have to give up because, you know, my condition and quite frankly, like I said, for many years, it was not good. Uh, so I had to get that out of my way and decide that, okay, I think I'm going to be okay. Maybe I'm not going to die from this. I've got to control that in my mind. Uh, and Alex, part of my MS problem is my short-term memory and it's, it just flared. So you asked me a question and I think I forgot what it was. <laughs> it was just that, um, have you, do you think you've learned anything from? Uh, oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I've learned, I've learned how to give up on things that really don't matter. And I really understand now that it's just the patience of being around life now and understanding what's going on. Uh, my wife and I, like I said, we've learned how to adjust. I have ramps in my house. Uh, I've got uh, grab bars in the shower. Uh, we've learned to live this life. And the one thing I've learned is that you just have to decide how you're going to get through it. Uh, because that's what I've done. I've, I've had to decide how I'm going to get through this. And so I've learned that, uh, and, and, you know, I lived a whole life with very, very talented young people by my side. I mean, I used to hire the, and, and remember, I was 50 some years old running a radio station playing Puff Daddy records. So I was out of the, I was out of the, the demo. So I've, I've learned to hire real smart young people. And then suddenly I'm on my own and I'm like, wait a minute, how do I do that? And uh, how do I get this computer thing to do this? And how do I edit this? So I actually had to go out and hire a bunch of people. But again, my hero is my wife. And I'll get into that a little bit later on at the end. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. So I was going to I was going to ask, I mean, I think um, just just taking a step back and, and focusing on your, you know, your career um, before the diagnosis, which itself, I can only imagine how, you know, how much hard work, but also how fun that must have been being in, uh, you know, the music industry at, at that time. Um, what were some of the, the things that you found, you know, how, how did you get to that position? What, what were some of the struggles you had to kind of overcome to, you know, become this this basically radio star at that time? Well, and that was part of the problem was I was a radio star and um, I offended people. <laughs> <laughs> I was sued for things that I'd say. Uh, so when it comes time for them to pick the disc jockey to run the radio station, it wasn't me. I mean, I got passed over a lot. And there came a time when my best friend was running Power 96 is the name of the radio station. Um, and unfortunately, the direction he'd taken the station was not clicking with the audience, and the management decided to make a change. 
So they made me the interim program director. It's not the first time I've been the interim, but they made me the interim program director. And of course, that job is to sit there, don't mess anything up until we decide who we're going to hire. And uh, so I... When I told them, no, don't hire anybody. You need me here now because I know this. Nobody knows this better than me. And they were like, no, <laughs> you're the guy. You have groupies come to the radio station. <laughs> they, you know, we got groupies. Uh, they come and they, and then I'm sorry, but I'm the guy. And they brought in, I mean, geniuses of the radio business. But because Miami is such a unique market, Miami is unlike any place else. It's got Americans, it's got Latins, it's got black population. It is a microcosm of America, but it leans highly Latin. And so you had to have somebody who understood that, and that was me. But they brought in geniuses, and eventually I kept telling them, and it was six months, and I, I've, they finally relented and said, okay, but just don't mess this up. And uh, fortunately, I had uh, real good success. It's a vibe, man. Radio is a vibe. They they handed me the plate. All I was the only I was the new conductor. That's all. I had the symphony. It's a vibe. Being on the radio, being able to communicate to a, an an audience that are young, eighteen to thirty four year old females, because that's the best top forty audience in America. That's if you can control that audience. You have the number one station. And I've known that. That's a formula I learned in college when I was 19 years old. It's just that when I did it, I did it differently than everybody else. Uh, and, and, and I leaned, for the first time, I leaned more Latin than just top 40 music. I mean, you know, you know I'm sorry. I, I can tell you the day, the first time that Pitbull walked into my office and he was introduced to me. Uh, was introduced to me by Luther Campbell, who was a very famous rapper who used to, you know, and he went to the Supreme Court to fight for the First Amendment, the right of free speech. So uh, we were very connected to the Latin population. And so putting that face on that top 40 radio station made it succeed like it never succeeded before. So I learned a lot, but it took me a lot to convince them that this guy's not going to kill the place. And I didn't. I had nine years of, you know, it's, it was the most listened to radio station in the Southeast USA. And uh, so I, I was proud. And it is still on the radio. It is not doing the same things it was doing when I was there. We've had a couple of ownership changes since then. So it's still available, but it's not what it was. Well, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And I think it's really interesting just listening to you tell that story, because I suppose from a, a kind of performance and, and workforce side of things you've got a number of things that you've done there like being persistent like you know knowing your own worth and, and understanding your audience and showing empathy for uh for for your i suppose user or customer which for you was the listenership um which is amazing and you mentioned hiring as well um i mean for for something like radio how important is is the team that you surround yourself with um to take you to sort of the next level it's vital it's vital you know when i first got there i was 22 years old and then when they finally gave me the radio station i was about 46 so it's a long span of me watching that market and understanding how it works and knowing knowing what we call the hot zip codes the zip codes that really mattered if i could make the station popular in 33136, we're going to get number one. So I figured this out because I'd been there for so long. Um, so I was able to use those things. And again, my, my short-term memory is flared again. You asked me a question. 
And it's Sorry, just about, the is just about surrounding yourself with, with oh, people. Oh, yeah, so with young people. So I knew, I knew the kids. I knew where to get the people to work from. In fact, um, if I could hire somebody from Hialeah High School, yes, I would do that because those kids know Hialeah, and that's what I want the radio station to sound like. I want to sound like Hialeah. And as a matter of fact, crazy story. I, I, a lady called me on the phone one day to, to ask me for an interview from a magazine in Miami. And she was so good over the telephone. I, I told her, I said, you need to leave there and come here and fill out an application. Because remember, <laughs> all I'm looking for, all radio is, is the voice coming out of the speaker. And this girl here was not taking any of my BS. She was throwing it all right back at me and was funny, hilarious. Well, that late, and that was, oh my gosh, that was, could have been, Oh, geez, 20 years ago, maybe 23 or four years ago. Well, now she's the morning show lady on Power 96. Wow. So I hired somebody that just on the phone because she was good uh, when I brought her in. And then uh, the staff accused me of <laughs> having a relationship with her because I was I, I wanted her to be involved. So I taught her how to become a DJ and I put her on the overnight show to teach her how to do it. And the other staff, the very famous morning show lady at the time, accused me of having a relationship with her in front of the boss. <laughs> I almost exploded. And he stopped and says, no, I know that's not true. Well, the big important morning show lady is gone and her replacement is now the lady that she told me I was having a relationship with. So I knew what I was doing. I hired a very talented woman. So that's, that's what you learn to do when you know how to program a radio station. Even when I was just on the radio, I, you know, I had producers around me, but I would go to the high schools and find the producers. Because the high school kids would know exactly what I should be saying. They would tell me exactly what's going on in the high school. So even when I was, you know, 25, 30, 40 years old on the radio, I hired high school kids because that's who I was talking to. So you just get used to that. And, uh, you know, I've been really lucky. That was a very good staff who did remarkable things for me at Power 96 when I was in charge. So it worked out real well. Well, it's, it's, it's really smart surrounding yourself by people who understand your, your demographic and your audience base. Um, yes, and, and I guess, you know, just following on from that story uh, you, you just mentioned, how, how competitive is it between kind of hosts of different radio slots uh, within a single station? Is that something that you, you had to deal with quite a lot or is it fairly friendly when you were? Uh, I think what I would, you know, I think you specifically have a, a thing in your head how you want the station to sound. So I would hire people to fit that sound. I don't really care what they wanted to do. It was my idea. If I thought, if, if you thought you wanted to be the morning show person, but I thought you'd be better on at night, that's where I would put you. But again, I was, I was handed a real nice plate. All I had to do was shift things around a little bit. And, and so, you know, everybody kind of sat where they wanted to sit because they enjoyed themselves. I mean, I'm, you know, Top 40 radio, being a DJ on top 40 radio station, when everybody knows the station, everybody knows who you are. And, you know, you go into a restaurant and they say, hey, come over here, sit over here. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, that's how that's what it was like for those guys. Those guys were extremely famous because of what we were doing. So they knew where they knew their place and everybody did what they were supposed to do. And, you know, I was, a, again, a very fortunate program director. I, I, did, I even took myself off the radio for a while. I mean, not for a while. There came a point when I knew I was too old to be communicating to the audience the radio station was focusing on. 
And I'd been on the radio for 25 years and my bosses were like, no, man, we need you. Your voice, everybody's always heard your voice. I'm, no, uh, the, the young kids don't know who the heck I am. You know, their <laughs> parents might, <laughs> but those young kids don't. So I took myself off and let, let the kids run the show. And uh, that's, that's what made it work. You know? And, and you know, hear, hearing you talk, radio is obviously a, a huge passion of yours. Where, where do you think that came from, and, and how did you sort of you know set out to pursue that as a career in the first place? Well, like I said, my dad, when I was seventeen years old, was the uh, was the news guy on the only radio station in my hometown. And uh, there's something about hearing your voice on the radio, and I can remember the very first words. It's funny that, that this comes up in conversation, but the very first words I ever said on a radio station were, this is KRLN, Canyon City, Colorado, the station with the news reputation. Now, I didn't do it that well, <laughs> but when I because when you first hear yourself, here's here's a science, you, you know, You've, you've heard disc jockeys who talk like this and they they got these really pukey type voices. Well, the reason they do that is because we as humans hear ourselves from the inner ear. So when you put on a set of headphones on somebody, suddenly you don't sound the same. So you try to change your voice and this is how you talk. So for a long time, disc jockeys talk like that until they realize that, wait a minute, I'm not speaking in my normal voice because I'm hearing myself from the outside. So when you can overcome that, it really makes it very easy for you to communicate. And I don't, again, know why I went there, but uh, now you know why disc jockeys talk like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very, very good insight. I think, um, I mean, I, th I think as an industry, it must have been amazing sort of having that career through such an interesting time in music as well. I mean, do you have any particular um, sort of stories of, of, of artists who, who you particularly kind of connected with, whether it's because of their stories or, or their music? Well, why 100? Case when I first when I first went down to Miami, remember, I was in Knoxville for six months, then I went to Miami, I was there about oh, a week. And I had, you know, a, a day, uh, the music director took me on a dinner meeting with Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis of the Fifth Dimension. And for a little kid from Colorado, and it was Marilyn McCoo, you know, it's, she's beautiful and that song you know they do a lot of songs i won't get into them but uh i was awestruck and then uh my first radio interview was with bob hope and i swear to you i have no idea as a 22 year old i don't even know what i said to him all i knew was i was on the phone talking to bob hope gee what do i say <laughs> so i couldn't even tell you what i said and, uh, you know, and, and, and then the morning show guy woke up one day and he was doing the morning show with Muhammad Ali. And so radio stations attract people like that. But when that guy got fired and I got hired to go across the street to Y100, um, that was the show business radio station in America at the time. Because in 1976, 1977, you got to remember Casey and the Sunshine Band was just hitting it. George McRae, Rock Your Baby, the Bee Gees, everybody was recording. They were there in Miami and they were always at Y100 because Y100 was a very good radio station. I was the first in America to give away a $50,000 cash prize. And then they did it like eight times. So it was a very famous radio station and the stars were all the time there. I mean, Donna Summer, we walking through the, they were there. Everybody was there all the time. So yeah, it was very cool to be brought up in that. Uh, and then as you go in later in life and then you become program director a few times, those people become your friends. 
uh, and, and you establish relationships. And I've got some very nice people out there who, you know, um, I become friends with. My favorite guy is Wyclef Sean. Uh, Wyclef and I, uh, we met right when my radio station was really hitting strong. His father passed away. My father passed away. These things bonded us. And so every now and then I'll be sitting around here in the house and my email will go off and there'll be a picture from Wyclef. Hey, how you doing? So, you know, it's just... <laughs> And these are still important things to me, and I'm glad that you know he reaches out every now and then. It's nice that these people still do that. But uh, yeah, it was it was. I used to go to the Grammy parties, Clive Davis's Clive Davis's Grammy party, which is the one that happens the night before the Grammys, is the real party. That's the one where you know that's the show you really get when when Whitney Houston comes out before she even goes out in America. I mean. The last night I was there, Alicia Keys performed. And that was the first time anybody had seen Alicia Keys. And so that was the party to go to. And then, of course, the next night, the Grammys. And nobody ever stayed at the Grammys. You know, you go sit in your assigned seats. And then when they go to commercials, you get out of the seats because the record companies are having these big parties at like the Playboy Club. And so, you know, I'm not staying at the Grammys. I'm going to the Playboy Club. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a good time, and fortunately, I got through it. Didn't get myself killed. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, and I, I, you know, so fast forwarding to to now, um, yes. you sort of alluded to it a little while ago, um, but you've now got this um, writing career, and and I've, I have authored two books um, uh, now. One about your own story, and and one sort of fiction. Could, could you sort of speak to? Uh, I know you mentioned a little bit earlier, but sort of transitioning into that sort of writing side and how you found that. Well, that has been an incredible thrill. Uh, first of all, like I said, to program a radio station, and when you're a guy like me, I never shut it off. I mean, my, my kids grew up with the, watching TV with the radio on in the background so I could hear what was going on. I wake up at three o'clock in the morning, a very obsessive job. And then to suddenly have all that just poof, turn off. <laughs> it really messed with me, man. I mean, I did learn international soccer, though. Because, you know, when you sit in the wheelchair, you know, I was sitting in my wheelchair, uh, I don't know, about two or three years after I was in the wheelchair, I'm watching, you know, Days of Our Lives, I'm tired of soap operas, and I think, well, what is this soccer thing here? You know, and I even had to go Google offside. <laughs> so I had to learn all this, and now I can't get enough. So, you know, it, it got real quiet for me. Uh, so so when, I, when my friend Vince encouraged me to find something to do, um, before he passed away, uh, I, I, I've this writing thing has kind of taken the place of that constant radio thing because now I, I'm writing books. Now I'm 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 play acting. I'm I'm doing a master class in in play acting. Uh, it's method acting. It's it's Marlon Brando because you know the book that I've got that's the that's this the historic fiction is called The Death of Fairness. And it's connected to the 1987 decision by President Ronald Reagan to rescind the Fairness Doctrine. Now, that was the doctrine that required the FCC to give equal time for contrasting points of view. So when you take out the rescind, when you rescind the Fairness Doctrine, what happens is all you hear are the lies. In other words, with the Fairness Doctrine, the president's from Kenya for 15 minutes has to be replaced 15 minutes later by the president's not from Kenya, and here's why. Hmm. When you take out the fairness doctrine, all you hear is the president's from Kenya. President's from Kenya. 
So I don't believe Ronald Reagan knew what he was doing. I think he thought that it, well, he told America that he did it because it was antagonistic to the rights given in the freedom of speech in the First Amendment. But in reality, before that, the broadcasting industry, remember he was an actor, the broadcasting industry got to him and said, this is costing us money because every time someone lies, someone can come now and say, wait a minute, I demand equal time. And then they would have to give free time. So it was affecting their bottom line. So these broadcasters got to Mr. Reagan and said, we got to get rid of this doctrine because it's costing us money. Well, Mr. Reagan turned around to America and said, no, it's because the First Amendment's more important. But he did it for financial reasons. So you look now where America is. All this division could very well be traced back to that decision because there was no Rush Limbaugh. You wouldn't have had Rush Limbaugh because every 30 minutes he was on putting out these conspiracy theories. Any responsible American citizen could go to the broadcast facility and say, hey, I want 30 minutes to prove this guy's wrong. So what would have happened is the broadcast facility would have thought, man, we're giving away too much free time. We got to get rid of this Limbaugh guy. That would have happened. So I really believe that this is an issue. And that's why I wrote my, my historic fiction, which is it's a, the tragic tale of what happened to a small American town and its only radio station after Ronald Reagan rescinded the Fairness Doctrine in 1987. And this has now put me into a novel that I'm in because I'm taking this book to the next level. And uh, I'm about 40,000 words into my 80,000 novel uh, about a young person working very hard to bring this country back under control by bringing back the fairness doctrine. So this is now my obsession. And because I have to go into this frame of mind, I, I'm not gonna give you everything, but my protagonist ends up being a young woman um, who has female tendencies, uh, 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 relation tendencies. So I've got to put myself in the mind of a 13, 14 year old girl who, who is questioning her, her, her femininity, whether is she, is she gay or is she not? So I have to research this. I read like crazy. In fact, I've never read a book. When you're a radio DJ, you read trade magazines and the daily news gossip. I never read a book till I became an author. Now I have to read stuff to research because I don't know what it's like to be 13 or 14 years old. But the good thing is I've got a 16-year-old in my house still. <laughs> and she reads my stuff and goes, you got it, dad. And I've acquired some friends. I've got a friend who is gay and she just, as a matter of fact, had her second baby on Sunday. They induced on Sunday. So now they have two children, but I'm getting outside help to be able to put myself in a frame of mind to be able to write this new story. So this is now the obsession that I used to have at three o'clock in the morning. I wanted to know what, what's the guy talking about? Make sure he's saying the right things. Well, now I get up at three o'clock in the morning and go, how am I going to get out of this situation and make it real? So it's the new obsession I have. It's, it's really kind of neat for me because I just make stuff up. That's what's weird. And, and I've got an editor who sits behind me the whole time. This is my writing coach. I, Carrie Flanagan is her name. Uh, she's got a book out called The Guide to Magazine Writing, Magazine Article Writing, Carrie Flanagan. But she edits my stuff and she goes over my stuff twice a week. Because I, I, it's 40,000 words. It takes a while. And when you're coming up with stuff, it takes a while. But surprisingly enough, I've got three publishers who are waiting to see what the 
product's all about because I pitched it to them. So I think it's a good story. It's just I need to get finished. <laughs> keep coming up with stuff, man. <laughs> well, it's, it sounds it sounds absolutely incredible, and I think it's it's really interesting as well because um, your I guess your approach is not that dissimilar to what you took during your radio career, where you were obviously had you know now where you were showing empathy for your sort of listener base, you're now showing empathy for your characters, and you're again surrounding yourself with a fantastic team, and you realize that you can't do everything you know by yourself. You have to bring in people who can do that. So. Really interesting how you've transitioned, right? <laughs> You're absolutely correct. Uh, it was really nice being able to run a radio station with all that help. And I have good help here helping me now. So <laughs> you, you just need it. You just, I just, because like I said, I'm making up stuff. I'm completely out of the realm. I got no idea, but I'm pulling it off according to my, to my people. So I'll let you know when the book comes out. <laughs> yeah, do please do. It sounds sounds phenomenal. And I, I guess just just as we start to sort of wind things down, um, for for anyone else, you know, who who is is any, I guess, in any walk of life, and, and they have suddenly, you know, something come out of the blue, whether it's an illness or whether it's uh, you know a change of life circumstances. What sort of advice would you give to them as to how they should you know approach and deal with that um, for, from your own experience? One thing I've learned because of MS is I just have to figure it out. Um, when I couldn't walk, I had to figure it out. I had to figure out how to get from here to there. Uh, when I couldn't, when I can't see, I have to figure out what I can do because sometimes I have exacerbations. My right eye goes out. Uh, my, my, my joints just don't work sometimes because that's the lesions that are on my brain and in my spine sometimes cause my, they just don't work. My arms just don't work sometimes. So I have to figure out how to, I can stand up, but I can't let go. So we've designed a kitchen in my in my front in my kitchen there that has 42 inches in between so that I can never let go. I can use my hands. If I let go, I fall over. So I, you've had to learn how to figure this out. When I first got diagnosed, I was so adamant about trying to keep walking. We we purchased a property. We had an acre of land, and my wife let me buy a tractor. <laughs> And when you buy it from the dealership, you get the key ring and the hat. So I had, me a, I had me a tractor. But now guys can just take steps up and just jump up on these tractors. Well, I couldn't do that. I had to get out of my wheelchair, pull myself to a stand, pull one leg up on the side, pull the other leg up on the side, pull myself up and swing myself into the chair. But then I could run it with my hands and I could pull my pant leg and put my foot on the accelerator. So I was going to do it regardless. And I did it. I mean, we, I, it was fun. I mean, I got to shovel my neighbor's driveways and I had a garden out there. I used to plow the backside and let my dog run crazy. So you have to figure things out when something happens, there really can be an answer. Uh, and because I'm a pretty positive guy, I don't really think I can't, in fact, that's probably it. My doctor would tell me sometimes, remember, man, you've got MS because I act like, I guess I act like sometimes, well, I mean, I can do this. Remember, man, you've got MS. <laughs> so I, in my mind, I try to go past it. So you can keep going. And I've learned to do that. And I'm, uh, I'm pretty happy with my life, you know? No, it's absolutely fantastic. And, and, and just as we, we wrap things up, you've already mentioned um, her a couple of times, but um, your human performance hero, uh, now, now's the time to, to tell everyone about your, your wife. <laughs> Okay, my date at the Grammys uh, gets her snow globe shaken. Uh, we decide to come out to Colorado and property invest. She, does, she doesn't like the way the realtors are treating us. 
She didn't think they were paying attention. She didn't think they were trying hard enough. So she thought, you know, I'm going to go become a realtor because I can out personally do these guys. I can be a nice person and, and I can get, well, then she ends up becoming a real estate agent. Then she ends up breaking per capita uh, records in the state. For the size we were in, she was breaking all sorts of records, selling 174 houses in one year. I mean, just doing crazy stuff. And then she decided, well, you know, if I'm so good at this, maybe I can consult and teach other people how to do this. Well, there is a company, there is a part of her company, real estate company, she works for Keller Williams, but part of that is the MAPS program, and they are actual coaches. They teach people how to sell houses. Uh, but now my wife has gotten so good at it, she's an international consultant, and you can't be a client of hers unless you sell 100 houses a year. So it, it's she's done so well at this, and I mean, I... I'm I'm at all because she is was behind me. She's had to learn because now when you coach, you have to teach people. You have to come out of your skin. Uh, I, I had to to kind of help bring her along and get her out of the deer and headlights thing, you know. Because when you're trying to teach, you know, you know, her voice would even change. I said, no, please. There's something inside you. Well, it wasn't me that found that thing inside her. It was all the coaches that she's been talking to and all the teaching they've done for her. My wife is a superior coach. She's a consultant. I couldn't take consultants as a radio guy. I didn't want anybody telling me what to do. I was in Miami, Florida. If you ain't here, you can't tell me. So consultants drove me nuts. My wife is so good, I would let her consult me. <laughs> I, I, so so she's just superior and and as far as uh she's a mom a stepmom uh she runs this house uh she's my full-time caregiver she coaches from 7 a.m on 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 tuesday wednesday thursday coaches around the world from 7 a.m till 5 p.m those three days uh in the office across from me and i'm in the office over here so i hear her all the time i'm sitting here typing doing my book stuff but I hear her all the time and she has got, she comes out of there and I, I just, honey, you've gotten really good at this because I, I used to hire people to do that kind of stuff. <laughs> and she's gotten so good at it. Uh, you know, I, I wonder sometimes if she's actually hearing me anymore. It's like, no, <laughs> shut up. Okay. Okay. No, she really has gotten good. So my wife is, is, is my hero. And, uh, and I really uh, attribute my success. Uh, she's been behind me the whole time and let me have, you know, she's not made me want for anything. I mean, I've had the best crutches. I've had, you know, in order to, to have hand controls, you see, I I get one wheelchair. My in, insurance gives me a wheelchair, but for me to leave my, my house and my motorized wheelchair come with me, I have to have something take it on the back of the car or by another vehicle. Well, I need, my wife and I decided we're just going to go ahead and buy another wheelchair to put in the car, a manual wheelchair, so that I can have this in the house and have the manual wheelchair in the car so that I can at least go out. Now, these are things that come out of your pocket. Uh, they don't give you that in insurance. Uh, in order for me to, to drive, I had to, to, to get hand controls for my car. And the crazy part about that is first you have to find the hospital that will teach you how to drive in hand controls. And then you've got to go back and forth and get certified to drive in hand controls. Then you've got to go buy the hand controls. They put them in your car and then you're driving with the hand controls, but you're not certified yet because you got to go home. And then 
I went to my, in this little town I was in, I went to the DMV to get licensed, certified to drive with hand controls, and nobody there knew how to do that. So they sent me to another town. I had to drive 30 miles to go have walked in there, and they didn't have anybody either. They told me, you need to come back in a week, and uh, we'll have somebody for you. I went back a week later. They didn't have anybody yet. This is true. So I called my wife. I'm out in front of the DMV. Now, remember, I've got to get in and out of my wheelchair, put my wheelchair back in my car, and all this has to happen. It's happening right in front of them because the windows are right there. And I'm laughing each time. I'm just calling my wife laughing. These people, man, I couldn't believe it. And then the day that I finally got there, they, they assigned this girl to me. I get in my car and she gets in the car. But now, remember, I'm a radio guy. I was listening to a radio station that I used to be the program director of. And I was listening to a guy who used to work for me. So she gets in the car and I turn the radio down. She says, no, no, don't turn that down. That's my favorite station. And I say, hey, I used to run that station. She says, well, do you know Nick Donnett? I say, sure I do. Well, that's my uncle. Give me that piece of paper. And she signed it. <laughs> I hadn't even, I hadn't even started the car. I was like, we haven't even moved. So I drove her around for at least five minutes just to show her I could do it, but I didn't need to because she'd already signed the paperwork. So like, but now keep in mind that all that time it's, it took me to do that. I had to pay for this stuff out of my pocket uh, to, to have the hand controls. And so those, and in order to get into the, to my home, I had to put an elevator in to get from the ground floor to the first floor to get into the house. So my wife affords me everything that I need to live a very, very comfortable life. My wife is my hero. It was an absolutely fantastic example. And, and, and just to finish things off, Kim, um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, on the podcast. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they go to find out a bit more information about you? Everything about me is at krcurry.com. That's C-U-R-R-Y. So it's krcurry.com. You can read about my books. You can order the books through Amazon. They're also on Audible. Come Get Me Mother, I'm Through is the name of my memoir. The Death of Fairness is the historic uh, fiction. Um, I also blog. You can read the blogs. And I've started doing some audio blogs. <laughs>